Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we are, we're, we're having an amazing founder. You know, we're going to be talking about the building, scaling, you know, financing, all of that good stuff. You know, we're also going to be talking about going public, also doing transactions with private equity firms. Uh, and, you know, incredible, you know, the company that uh, this founder has built, you know, the peak $2 billion valuation plus. Uh, and again, you know, also an author, you know, there is uh, some interesting conversations that we're going to be talking about there on building a sustainable business versus you know, all the craziness, you know, that we've encountered in the past years, you know, around unicorns that I think, you know, has uh, really come to bite everyone, you know, with this macro environment. Uh, but uh, but again, you know, brace yourself for a very inspiring conversation. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Chris Cabrera. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Alejandro. Great to be here. So originally born in Boston, but I know that uh, California, you know, took your heart, you know, early on. So give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Uh, life was great. One of five kids, uh, born from a first-generation Colombian father, and uh, he, you know, brought the family out to California uh, back in the late '70s. And I went to high school out in Northern California. And so, I don't consider myself a native, but I've, you know, certainly been in California a long time. So then, so then, tell us, you know, how do you get into this business and? an entrepreneurial thingy, because that's ultimately what you went to study. You know, it sounds like uh, you knew you wanted to do something, you know, of your own, you know, eventually. So uh, what got you into that direction? Yeah, I mean, I, like I said, I grew up, my father was, um, you know, an immigrant and, you know, was always being an entrepreneur, but I watched him and worked for him for years and years, but I watched him toil and do things very much bootstrapped and things like that. And so, I wanted to go get a formal business education and, you know, and, and yeah, growing up in the Silicon Valley, literally, you know, in the middle of, you know, I, I graduated high school in 84, you know, when Apple was, you know, kind of peaking and all that stuff, not peaking, but I mean, you know, the computers were just like beginning to take off. So it's a kind of a crazy time. And so anyway, I went to school down in Southern California at USC. I went through a special program they had called the Entrepreneur Program. And I just, I really, I knew I wanted to start a company. I didn't know what yet. And I wasn't, you know, necessarily eager to go do it. I just wanted to have that background. And so, you know, one of the things that I uh, am happy about when I look back on my career is that I sort of waited till the right time to start a company. And at that point, that educational background that I had really paid off. Whereas a lot of people try to force it, you know, they come out, they get a degree in entrepreneurism or something, and then they immediately go try to start a company just so they can be an entrepreneur. And I think that is uh, often ends badly as opposed to waiting for the right time, the right circumstances, the right company, things like that. Well, I mean, in your case, you were also very lucky because you were able to uh, see, you know, how some of those organizations really work. Uh, but most importantly, to develop some of the, I would say the most essential skills of being a founder, which is really embracing sales, business development, and really understanding how to get people to buy your product and to also build something that people want to use. So what would you say that, you know, were your biggest takeaways, you know, during the early days of um, after university when, you know, you were working 
at companies like SDI or Cali the software? I mean, what, what were some of those takeaways? Well, I think, you know, in many cases, I, uh, you know, at those companies, they, you know, had great experiences there, but in many cases, uh, and they were many different leaders throughout those years, but in a lot of ways, I learned what not to do, right? Uh, in some cases, and, and in some cases, I learned to emulate those leaders and the things that I thought that they were really great at. And one thing, you know, and I combined that, I think, with my experiences watching my dad with his businesses. And I think what it did was it allowed me to sort of formulate this, this uh, you know, style, I guess, of running a company, which was very, very focused on the people and the culture uh, and the products, but mo really, frankly, more so on the company itself and the culture and the people. I always kind of felt like we could build anything. I mean, the product is just a moment in time. That's what we're selling today. That's what we're doing today. But the people and the culture is 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 that lasting thing, right? And so I think that has served me well, also. And I learned a lot of those lessons by watching these other leaders, and uh, including my dad. So while you were at Cali the Software, you know, obviously a company that uh, it ended up going public. You literally uh, went there when it was doing zero in revenue and uh, you were running sales and business development. Eventually, you know, you got your calling. You're calling for what uh, would end up being your time, your time to shine, your time to really take the uh, the leap of faith, no, uh, to start exactly. So, so walk us to what were the sequence of events that needed to happen for you to really feel that you were ready? Because, I mean, at this point, you were for, you know, over a decade now, you know, working for other companies. I mean, wh what what made you feel that it was your time, your time to go at it? Well, Alejandro, it's a great question. And, it, you know, I wish I could say that I had this spark of lightning and just kind of, you know, went and did it. Um, the, the reality is that it was sort of forced upon me. In many ways, I feel like I was a reluctant uh, founder. And uh, what I mean by that is, I was at a company, you mentioned Calidus, we were selling on-premise software. This is in the, you know, late 90s, early 2000s. We used to sell, you know, CDs with software on it. Many people listening probably don't even remember those days, not old enough. Uh, but in those days, you know, that's how you sold software. And it was very, very expensive to install. The companies had to have all this hardware. And so because of all that expense, it really precluded you from selling to the masses. Um, of course, Salesforce came along and they were one of the, the, the first real pioneers in the SaaS world. And I was trying to get the CFO at Salesforce to become a customer and buy my, my on-premise software. And uh, he's a, a good friend, a guy named Steve Cakebread. And after a six-month sales cycle, he said to me that he would never buy my product uh, because it was the wrong religion. And he said, if you go start a company uh, that's SaaS, I'll become your first customer. Even then, I really did not want to go start a company. And so rather, I went back to the folks at Calidus, the leadership team at the time, and I tried to plead with them to create a SaaS version. But again, you have to remember, this at this time, it was now 2000, late 2004. SaaS was not a big thing yet. There was only a few companies doing it, Salesforce being one of them. And the CTO and the leadership team at the time felt that SaaS was a fad. And so they said, we're not doing that. I was a 37-year-old guy. I was much more brash than I am today. And so I pretty much swore at them and told them they were idiots and, um, you know, kind of made a big fuss and ultimately got fired. And so at Christmas time in 2004, I found myself without a job. <laughs> but because I had been a 16B officer, which is one of the top officers of a public company, 
they paid me a bunch of money. Like they paid me like a year's salary to just quietly go away. So I remember sitting there at Christmas in 04 going, well, I don't really need a paycheck for a while. I'm very passionate about this space. I've got the CFO at Salesforce saying, you know, if you build it, I'll be your first customer. So it really wasn't that. Uh, I mean, probably anybody on the phone, given those same set of circumstances, probably would have done the same thing, which was to go start a company. And so that's kind of how I got into it. Sorry for the long story, but I mean, that, that it is kind of an important part of it. But why exactly? You know, out of all companies that you could have started, I mean, why, why exactly ended up being exactly? Well, because I was passionate about the stakes. I had, I had built, you know, largely me and my teams had taken this Calidus company from zero to 100 million, took it to public. And I really liked what we were doing. And, I, and because we could only sell to those very, very big companies that could afford multiple hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars, I was really passionate about servicing the rest of the, the landscape. And I remember Benioff at the time, one of his big things was all about democratization of software. And that really resonated with me because it, what he meant by that was you can sell it to everybody, right? It's not just for the rich and big, you know, huge companies. It's for every size company. And so anyway, I, I think I was very convinced that that was the space I wanted to be in. And I was very, very convinced that the future was SaaS because in a SaaS model, I, you know, companies could effectively rent the software instead of having to buy it. And so I could do deals that were, you know, thousands or tens of thousands of dollars, you know, kind of a month versus millions of dollars. And, and so imagine how many more companies I could sell to. And that, of course, is exactly how it played out. But um, but that was why. So what, what ended up being the business model of Shackley for the people listening to get it? So the business model, uh, for, first of all, what exactly did in the, in the, at its core in the beginning was we automated compensation. So just any company that has any kind of sales team whatsoever, they're paying them commission. Uh, it's always done in Excel or spreadsheets. It's very error-ridden, error and the reps don't understand how they're getting paid. And so our premise was if you you know pay people accurately and you dangle that carrot in front of their face and uh, using their phones and and their you know much more real time even before they close a deal, you're going to affect their behavior. Of course, that's completely been proven out, and there's lots of studies that that prove that. The big innovation about Exactly was we were the first to the cloud, right? So no, there was no other companies in the commission space that were cloud-based. We were literally the first. And so our big innovation was, you don't have to buy this from Calidus and spend you know huge amounts of money. You could basically rent the software and buy it as SaaS. Now, again, remember, in, we started the company in March of 05. I mean, we were educating people on the SaaS world. I mean, SaaS didn't mean anything to anybody. No one knew what it was. And so a big part of the company in the early days was, just trying to convince people that SaaS was the future. Obviously, as years went on and the whole world shifted to, 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 to SaaS, in fact, the company that terminated me uh, ended up changing their name to Calidus Cloud, which I always thought was sort of uh, hilarious. Um, but anyway, so the cloud became the future, and that was the business model that we you know, had created and, and sort of uh, were, were pioneering. And then also, you know, as you guys were building the business, you know, you, you did um, a bunch of capital raises too. Uh, before the company going public, how much did the company raise? We raised just uh, just shy of $100 million, which by today's standards doesn't sound like a lot of money. But back in those days, you know, it was a lot of money. We did an A round, a B round, a C round. Um, and, you know, 
things have changed so much today that I, I, I don't really quite understand it because it's, it's, it's way easier to develop products, but yet companies raise way more money than they, than they probably should or need to. Part of that is because for many years, the cost of capital has been so cheap that you know all, all these investors just have tons of money. And so they're, they're, people are doing these giant A rounds and, and things like that. It wasn't like that in my, during my time. So we raised 100 million and then uh, we raised another 100 million you know, at the IPO. And that was about it for the whole, uh, whole company. Well, I mean, obviously you guys got started in 2005. So the uh, venture landscape has uh, evolved quite a bit, no? But, uh, but for you guys, uh, being able to, to do that, which was remarkable, you know, raise the 100 million, then doing the IPO and, and getting access to, to more pools of money, like you were alluding to, how was that uh, journey to of, of going public? I'm sure that uh, ringing that bell was, uh, was quite an experience. I have to say it was, uh, it was on my bucket list and it was absolutely just a, a phenomenal experience. Um, you know, again, even that things have changed back in those days, you know, you, you did the private jet thing flying around to all these investors leading up to the, the two weeks leading up and then you price it and then you ring the bell. You know, we did the New York stock exchange and, you know, they, you're up on a platform and you actually press a button and there's no bell ringing. You just hold the button down and that's what rings the bell. And, you know, I had my family surrounding me, my wife, Marla, and my, my two kids were behind me. My daughter at the time was at business school at USC, where I had gone. And so she had, you know, literally took time off of school to come ring the bell with us on, on the stage at Wall Street. So it was like a family thing. It was really, really, really cool. Uh, definitely once in a lifetime experience. I think, you know, from that point, it, w it was sort of downhill from there, um, primarily because we were relatively small as a, as a public company. Uh, if I had it to do over again, I, you know, and, and things again have changed. I mean, we went public on a $70 million, you know, kind of run rate, uh, which is today you could never do. I would never take a company public today unless it was doing, you know, say $300 million and, you know, and profitable. We had no profit. We were losing money. I mean, it was just a very different world back then. And I realized that for me, spending a ton of time on the East Coast, on Wall Street, meeting with investors all day long, kind of doing the same pitch over and over and over again, it's not really my thing. You know, I'm more of a customer facing CEO. Like I love being out in front and being with customers and prospects and, you know, kind of selling the, the, the vision of the company. And that's not really what you did, what, at least what I was doing as a, C, a public CEO. So. Um, I was very happy when a couple of years into it, uh, a private equity firm called Vista Equity Partners approached me and said, hey, we want to buy you and take you private. Um, it was frankly music to my ears. And uh, it has been a, that was about seven years ago. And it's been a phenomenal experience. Hey, guys. So pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired. You don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, 
to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a Series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. And how was that like? Because when they came in, you know, obviously taking it private and, and not having to deal with the crazy, you know, regulatory and compliance and, and being so out there, like you were saying too, with Vista, you know, how was that like? I believe it was like a 600 million, you know, type of uh, deal, you know, the stake that when they, when they got in. But how was that like also of taking a company public, you know, now private again? Yeah, like I say, I mean, I've heard all kinds of horror stories about PE and CEOs that don't have a good experience, especially founders that don't have a good experience. I, ha I have had a wonderful experience. It was a great, a great run. Um, you know, they, I mean, no question, their whole premise was we we're going to take you private, allow you to go do some acquisitions to build out the product uh, family and, you know, get the company to where it's, you know, more profitable. And, you know, here we are six or so years later, we've done five acquisitions. The company is, you know, well in excess of 200 million and, and dropping, you know, 30% EBITDA margins. You know, it's a, it's a phenomenal, phenomenal uh, company. And not that we weren't when they bought us, but, you know, frankly, we weren't. I mean, we were a public company that was, you know, bouncing sales all around. We were not making money. And, you know, it was not as much fun, right? It's way more fun to run a company that's profitable and, you know, really well balanced and and uh, more healthy. And Vista help, helped us do that and has been a great partner throughout it. Uh, one of the things that you guys use to uh, fuel the inorganic growth uh, side of things um, was basically acquisitions. You guys did five acquisitions. And as the saying is, is that most acquisitions fail, right? Because of integration. So what did you learn about integration too and using acquisitions as well as a method for, for growth? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think acquisitions um, are a great way to uh, you know, build out the product. In our case, we did not acquire uh, large companies. We, we acquired like technology. We acquired technologies that allowed us to build out our our product roadmap so that we were no longer just selling comp. We, we expanded into selling, you know, things like, um, you know, compensation planning and, and, you know, a lot of the things that are ancillary or on both sides of the actual process of doing compensation. Uh, we bought a great company that was doing sales forecasting and, you know, so it's tied into the compensation, but it also does the sales forecasting. So we allowed ourselves to broaden that. I think if I'm being honest of the five we bought, I would say two were probably failures. I would probably put them in the category of, not, you know, if knowing what we know now, we probably wouldn't have done those. Um, but the other three have been phenomenal. And so I, I, part of it is I just think that is, you know, you're never going to you're never going to bat a thousand on these things. Um, and, and, and that's certainly true in our case. But 
uh, I, I'm very pleased with the ones we've done that have turned out very successfully. And that is what's allowed us to build up the product uh, suite that we have today. So have you um, identified any patterns, maybe like three key ingredients that were uh, common on the acquisitions that they ended up succeeding on the integration side versus the ones that ended up failing? Well, I mean, it sounds cliche, but I mean, you know, there's no question that the people, you know, like two of the three um, that were successful, the CEOs, you know, were very engaged, very much wanted to make these deals happen. Stayed the second in the second example, the CEO stayed on with the company for well over a year, year and a half. Um, in the first example, he was a big advisor and supporter to me, and so. You know, I, I think that's very important, right? And some of the other pieces that probably didn't go so well, you know, the company was, you know, the CEO bailed out right away. And, and that, you know, you lose a lot of that um, tribal knowledge very quickly. And, and that's kind of dangerous. And so I think that, you know, the people matters a lot. Um, you know, I've heard people say a lot, you know, the location and all that kind of stuff matters. Although, you know, both of the acquisitions that we did that were, or two of the three that I, I would say were very positive were on the other side of the country. And so, you know, we, we did, we, we were, we managed to maintain those CEOs and maintain those uh, employees. So I don't really, I don't, I don't think that's a part of it. I just think it's more the ultimate culture and the leadership. And then of course the products have to be great. And uh, you know, I would say one of the lessons we learned very early on and one of the first acquisitions we did is we did not do enough due diligence. Um, you know, we, we kind of were so excited to do this acquisition and we kind of saw this, you know, shiny thing and we like, oh, we want this. And then after we got it, we were like, holy cow, did somebody, didn't somebody look at this more deeply? You know, so that was a big lesson. And then in the future ones, we did a lot more, obviously, due diligence on the technology. So in your case, too, I mean, it's incredible the fact that you were able to find time to also go into publishing books. Uh, and uh, you've done two. The latest one, you know, is very much, um, you know, relevant, especially to the environment that we're in. And that is called the unicorn fallacy. Uh, there you talk about, you know, some of the uh, things, you know, to, to think the way to think about growth or die, you know, type of mentality and, and things like that. So, so what else, you know, would people, you know, that are listening, you know, if they were to pick up that book, what, what can they find in the book? Well, I mean, I think one of the things that always bothered me as a as a founder, CEO, especially, you know, as I say, kind of all of this happened in my life right in the center of the Silicon Valley where you know, a lot of this technology companies were. And I remember learning about the unicorn thing in the beginning. You know, a unicorn is a private company with a valuation of a billion dollars. And, you know, the original unicorns were you know, I think Facebook and, you know, Amazon, these kind of companies. And they truly were unicorns. I mean, they were by definition, these special, rare things. And I was obviously, as a young entrepreneur, very enamored with that. I thought, oh, wow, that's so amazing. I'd love to be that someday. And somehow, over a period of a very short period of time, we, I, I popped my head up, and there were literally herds of unicorn running around the Silicon Valley. And that's such an oxymoron to have a herd of unicorns. So, I mean, because it, by definition, is not special. It is not unique. And you had companies that were doing $20 million in revenue, $20 million in revenue, getting billion-dollar-plus valuations, right? And 
and wearing that proudly that they were a unicorn and all this kind of stuff. And I, it always kind of didn't sit right with me. It bothered me a little bit. And of course, as we've seen over the last you know two years, 18 months, many, many of those, quote, herd unicorns, uh, not the special ones, there's, some, there's a lot that deserve it, but there's a lot that don't. And many of those that got those crazy valuations are facing existential crises because their their stock is you know way underwater. The employees know that they'll never grow into that valuation again, and so these companies are having to either do recapitalizations or many of them are really just going away. And so the book is really about ditch the whole mentality of growth at all costs so you can get these crazy valuations and focus on building long term businesses that have a balanced rule of 40 or rule of 50, um, where you know your growth is, is good and healthy, but so is your EBITDA margin. And I think some of the lessons that we learned you know, through our private equity experience of, of keeping your eye on that ball of not spending like a drunk sailor, and also, and then not trying to get these outsized valuations, because neither of those things help you as an entrepreneur. They might feel good, but they actually don't help your business in the long run. Um, and so the book is really chock-a-block full of examples of how to do what I'm talking about, how to, how to uh, create an environment where you can get a balanced rule of 40 or rule of 50 now. So very recently, you, know, you decided to, uh, to step down as the CEO of the company. And uh, we're talking about 19 years you know, pushing, you know, 19 years pushing Exactly. You know, 19 years of an incredible, remarkable journey and, uh, you know, building this. How was that, you know, for you after such a long time? That's almost everything that you knew, you know, for 19 years. It is. And, and you know, when you add the eight years I was at Calidus, you know, it's a long time to be in a single space. And, you know, these days you don't see that very often. And so, um, you know, my son came to me and, you know, he, he was doing one of these Google uh, or uh, chat GBT, you know, searches or whatever. And he said, you know, dad, you're one of the three longest tenured SaaS CEOs in the world. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And so he showed me this chat GBT search that, that showed that. And I swear to God, it kind of made me go, I don't know if that's something that's good. <laughs> I almost feel like, I need to do something different. I need to expand my horizons a little bit. Um, I, I think that combined with, you know, just getting a little bit older, became a grandfather recently, um, wow. you know, kind of thinking about maybe doing some other things. And and also, you know, I've been grooming uh, a gentleman who was my COO, uh, a guy named Arnab Mishra. I've been grooming him to become the CEO and replace me because I knew that was inevitable. And so it was just the, the timing just felt right to, you know, sort of, elevate to just being a board member only and helping him kind of take over the reins as the CEO. I'm still going to be a very active board member, but you know, this is a exactly such a wonderful company and I want to leave it in good hands with people. I mean, my kids both work there, so I'm very, very connected to the company and always will be. Um, but I just didn't want to do the day-to-day, -day, you know, grind of it anymore. <laughs> you know, I feel like, you know, that's, that's, you know, better for, for someone that, you know, is more passionate and younger and, you know, wants to go prove that. I have other things I want to go prove. And I'd like to, I'd like to prove that I could do something in a different market, you know, I mean, because I don't want to look back on my career and go, geez, you spent the entire, entirety of your career doing the same thing. 
you know, I'm only 57. So I figure I've got, you know, at least 10, 15 more years of good work. I'd like to try some different things. That's amazing. So let's say I put you into a time machine now, Chris, to try a different thing, you know, a different way of thinking now, you know, especially for the people that are listening. And I bring you into that time machine back to 2005. You know, you are now thinking about making a jump from Calidus to really starting what it essentially would become exactly. But right before, you know, making that jump, you have the opportunity to appear in front of your younger self. And having that opportunity of giving that younger self one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? Well, I mean, I would probably advise him to, uh, you know, buy some Apple stock and, uh, you know, some some Google stock and things like that. But, but no, I think really, I, I think there's not much I would do differently. I mean, we've had, there's been all kinds of trials and tribulations and failures throughout the years, but all those things helped make us better. So I, w- I wouldn't want to just avoid those things. I mean, I do think when we raised money in the early days, I didn't, I got some bad advice. Um, one of my old mentors told me that, you know, everybody's money's green. And so, you know, just take whoever's giving you the best valuation. That turns out to not be true. And I think, you know, one of the experiences we had was, you know, we went through the downturn in 08, 09. That was three, four years into the company's existence. And, you know, of course, sales started to contract and we needed more cash. And I, I went to my investors and said, hey, guys, we need to raise more money. And and a bunch of them had no more money. It wasn't they were good people and they wanted to, you know, uh, help the company, but they just didn't have the funds. They didn't have the deep enough pockets. And so the lesson I learned was the quality of the investor in terms of how deep their pockets are, how much reserve they have uh, allocated for you. Those were questions that really I didn't focus on in those early in those early uh, years. And, you know, when you when you raise that money in the initial, you know, you're, you're it's like a marriage. I mean, you're signing up with these folks for a very long time to be on your board and be in, you know, in your kitchen and helping you grow the business. And, and so I, I think I would probably tell that person or tell myself, you know, be a little more careful on, on who you bring into under the tent and where the money is coming from. We ended up, you know, bringing in new investors and, you know, kind of squeezing others out. And we, you know, we ended up getting there, but boy, it certainly created some uh, stressful nights for me uh, during that time. No kidding. So, Chris, for the uh, people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Well, I'm pretty available on LinkedIn. Um, you know, I, I do get a lot of LinkedIn traffic. So, you, you know, make sure you put something interesting in the question or, or, you know, or whatever. But I mean, happy to help in any ways that I can. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, actively evaluating what I want to do next and, and you know, uh, but anyway, yeah, I'm very. I have more time now than I have in a long time, so you know, I'm I'm open to you know helping in ways that whatever I can do. Amazing. Well, hey, Chris, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed the conversation. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value either from this episode or from the show itself. Share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember, 
that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.